beautiful islands of Hawaii were the setting of an important gathering dealing with some of the most challenging spiritual and cultural questions facing modern people. Why does God sometimes seem so silent in the face of suffering? What is the new definition of tolerance? Do media and entertainment really have a profound impact on us? Is it wrong to doubt my faith? And what do I do about it? You're in the right place because we have audio from Hawaii's Apologetics Conference taking the issues head on. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman recently hosted Hawaii's Christian Apologetics Conference with top Christian scholars, Drs. Gary Habermas and Kirby Anderson. Today, we want to give you a sample and remind you that you can download the complete conference at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Let's start with Gary Habermas on The Silence of God. A seminary student came up to me and he said, a good friend of mine, and as we were leaving class one day, he said, hey, I got engaged last week. And I said, good for you. He said, I've written my fiance a letter every day. And like I said, I knew this guy pretty well, and I said, that won't last long. And he's, well, he had a reason for going here. He's one of the sharpest guys in the class. And he said, okay, but I have a question. How come God never writes us love letters? He kind of set me up for it, you know, telling me he was engaged and wanted this tight relationship with somebody. And how come we don't have that with God? And this is before the shack, where, of course, the main theme of the book is whether the main character got a love letter from God. People want love letters from God. How would you feel if you got a letter in your mailbox with a heavenly postmark? What would it look like? You know, like a little return address with a little golden picture of... I don't know what it would look like, like the Emerald City of Oz or something, only with gold. Yeah, the Bible. Yeah. What would that look like? But here's why this one, this, here's why this issue is a little different from some of the others. People who suffer from this one. And I'll bet you, if we ask for a show of hands here, I'll bet you virtually every Christian at some time, suffers from issues regarding A, God's silence, and B, emotional doubt. You know why we suffer from these issues? It's very, it's very, and why we do it in common? Because number one, we're finite. Number two, we're sinners. We're incomplete persons, and so we have flaws. And therefore, these things come up that sound like dissonance to us, you know, background noise. And here's why this first one's a little more of an issue. Christians think they have verse support for why God shouldn't be letting them down. And they ask questions like this. I've been praying for this for 20 years, don't you know? And God never answers my prayer. There's one. Here's another one. What about my favorite verses? I memorized these when I was a child and I still remember them. And God has promised to answer before we even ask. Sometimes I'm tempted to think he doesn't care. But see, they claim verse support. And, and the implications are that God's not being true to his word. How many of you, Job, is your favorite book of the Bible? All right. And I went through that book, and I realized there's so much in that book we never read because it's not fun. Or at least we tell ourselves it. He challenges God to a debate over and over. In fact, many Old Testament scholars think that the setting of Job is a courtroom situation. 
That was Dr. Gary Habermas at Hawaii's Apologetics Conference, and you're listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. Dr. Zucharin has long noted that there is a new definition of tolerance. He's written and spoken on it, and we encourage you to download these resources at evidenceandanswers.org. Now, this entire conference is available along with many other resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at evidenceandanswers.org. Here's a portion of Pat's insightful commentary on the new tolerance. What is one of the worst things that you can be called today? Hmm? Moron? Loser? Ugly? What's one of the worst things you can be called? I'll tell you what it is. One of the worst things you can be called is intolerant. Intolerant and narrow-minded. I mean, intolerance today is seen as equal to being a racist. Many of us are afraid of being labeled intolerant by our peers around us, whether at school or at work. However, one of the most dangerous ideas being embraced by our culture today is a new and dangerous and false definition of tolerance. See, tolerance is one of the most valued virtues of our society today, but it is also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied. And the charge leveled against Christians today is this, that Christianity is a dangerous religion because it practices intolerance. Christians believe that they have the divine revelation of God, that their beliefs and values are true and apply to all people. And they do not accept beliefs that conflict with biblical teaching or behavior that's contrary to what Christ commanded. It is therefore alleged that it is the intolerance of Christians that is the cause of much of the conflict and unrest in society today. However, as I'm going to show you, the intolerance our culture embraces today is a false and dangerous definition. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin as we're hearing just a sample of some of the great sessions at Hawaii's Apologetics Conference. The whole conference is available at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll hear compelling topics and challenging questions taken on by today's top Christian speakers and apologists like Kirby Anderson. Here he is on Discerning Truth in Media. But what I want to try to do for just a few minutes is talk about why this would be an important thing for you to know about. And interestingly enough, there was an excellent survey that was done a number of years ago by George Barna. I enjoy really interviewing him on radio. And he has done a lot to try to understand what is in the minds, the hearts and the minds of individuals in our culture. And a while back, he tried to create what he felt was an indices, an index of the what he felt were the sources of significant influence called SSI. What are the things that are most influential in your life your children's life, your grandchildren's life. And he concluded through some sophisticated things I won't get into, that the sources of significant influence in American society are movies, television, the internet, books, music, public policy and law, and family. Now, when you look at that, those first five all have to do with what? The media. Now, again, I'm going to say some critical things about the media, but you know what? I'm in the media. I do radio every single day. I do a daily commentary that's heard on all sorts of networks. I do a daily live two-hour radio talk show called Point of View. I also am on the Probe Radio Show, which is on 600 stations, not only in these, this country, but in other countries around the world. I do television. 
I interact with that. We are involved in websites and all sorts of other things. So I understand the media. But what I think we're starting to find is the media is, without a doubt, the primary influencer of values in the culture. So if you are a teacher, if you're a pastor, if you're a leadership, you have to be concerned. If you're a parent or you have individuals that you are ministering to, you have to understand the significant impact of the media. Now, when this was first published in Christianity Today, it was one of the most controversial articles that ever appeared in Christianity Today because of the next statement. He concluded that the church is not even in the top 12 sources of influence. Think about this for just a minute. Let's imagine we could go back, say, 50 years in time, and we were to interview people in America back then, 50 years ago. Let's say we go back 100 years ago. Who do you think would be the primary sources of influence in the culture at that time? Church and family, would you say? You know, I don't know if it would be one, two, or two, one, but, you know, church and family, one and two. But here you can see how much further lower the family is and how the church is not even in the top 12 influence. Now, it may be influential to you. You're in a church today. You probably go to a church tomorrow. But the point is, America is much more influenced by the media. And if you're in ministry, you have to pay attention to that. If you're concerned about the future of this country, you have to be concerned about that. So let's look at some of the things I've put there on the outline and try to help you understand that this generation really is growing up in what I would call a media storm. A good way to illustrate that is to start giving some numbers to all of that. The time the average high school student graduates from high school, he or she will have seen 22,000 hours of television. To put that in perspective, they will only have spent 11,000 hours in a classroom. And think about this for just a minute. 22,000 hours of television by the time an individual graduates from high school. But teenagers tend to listen to a lot of music, don't they? The Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of years ago, actually using diaries and interviews, concluded that the average teenager, just during their teen years alone, listened to about 10,500 hours of music. That's about 11,000 hours if we rounded up, considering they probably listened to some music before they were teenagers. And by the way, this was a survey done before the iPod was really reaching its full impact in our society. I suspect that number is going to go up if they do another survey one. You begin to see that we have a whole generation growing up in the midst of what? A media storm. Well, we hope you get the idea of what is available to you at evidenceandanswers.org. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin as we feature some audio highlights from Hawaii's Apologetics Conference. Kirby Anderson has a lot more to say, and you can get the entire conference at evidenceandanswers.org. Dr. Zuckerman invited prominent experts on a variety of topics. Here again is Dr. Gary Habermas on Dealing with Doubt. Emotional issues are the most common when it comes to questions of doubt. Emotional issues. I'll just remember that and I'm going to go right in there. Let me define doubt as uncertainty, uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to Him. Uncertainty regarding God or our relationship to Him. And of course, the closer that uncertainty gets to the center, the more we feel the pain. Now, here's some examples. It may come in an area of a factual truth. For example, can I really believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, hey, you've got to go read this book by so-and-so. It's a great volume with good evidence on the nature of Scripture. Well, if you get really basic, you might go to work someday and get upset by somebody who says there's no God, and you come home and you wonder 
What kind of argumentation do we have for that? Or creation, or heaven, or hell? Factual doubt asks questions that are solved by the data. I'm going to tell you something. There's no area where Christianity is stronger than factual arguments for the heart of our beliefs. I'll tell you something else. No religion, no other religion in general, there are, are almost no examples of religions that will even try to compete with us. Because many religions will say, it's all by faith. That might surprise you, because too often Christians say that. So if you have a factual question, you solve it with factual data. Factual doubt is relatively simple. It would be like a broken leg. You say, well, that's not very simple. No, but a simple break is easier than a compound break, is easier than tearing a ligament. Factual doubt is like a clean break. Here's a clue. If your questions and your bother continue after the question's been, bothered, been answered, that's a good hint that it's not factual doubt. Here's another kind. I don't have any question Christianity's true, but I sure wished I knew I was a member of the fold. Man, I just wish God would, you know, write me that love letter, and I would like God to give me a little business card that says, you're in the body of Christ, and I would plasticize that, and I would take it everywhere. It'd be the dearest thing I own. The assurance of salvation is a real common issue. A third kind would be questions like we dealt with today. Silence. How come my prayers don't get past the ceiling? How come God doesn't generally give me what we want? The bill over here, he gets everything he prays for. And lastly, why do bad things happen to good people? Pain and suffering. Those are just some issues, some examples of doubt. Is this doctrine true? How do I know I'm saved? How do I get God to talk to me? And why do bad things happen to good people? I know of no subject in Christianity, theology, practice, apologetics. I know of no other area which has more incorrect twists and turns than this topic. And the key to getting that bomb in that delivery system on doubt is at least getting close to the end without making wrong turns. Right? Like getting anywhere else. What are some of the wrong turns? Here's some false beliefs, in my opinion, about doubt. Number one, doubt is always sin. You know something? There are dozens and dozens of passages about doubt in the Bible. And if I ask you to name a few, you might struggle a little bit. You know why? It doesn't preach, and it seldom comes up in sermons. And because we all ask questions at some time, I think, are so close to 100%, Again, because we're A, finite, B, sinners, we are creatures that want answers. Nobody wants to admit, including the person talking, doesn't want to admit, I've been there too. I will tell you this, I went through a period of skepticism, pretty involved skepticism, after I came to Christ. My mother called me after I finished my PhD, and she said, are you coming with your question? And I said, I think I'm about three months from becoming a Buddhist. She wasn't too excited. I went through about 10 to 15 years of doubt, and I searched, and I was torn up, and I wish somebody would have told me some of these things. But when you tell yourself, it's bad enough to doubt, but when you tell yourself you're a loser because you're doubting, that just compounds things. Do you know that almost every major believer in Scripture about whom we have good information, a good amount of information, goes through major questions? Now, you know Job's name is almost synonymous with with doubting and hurting and wanting to debate God and everything else. Probably the next two people who suffer the most with doubt, David or Abraham. 
the man of faith. Abraham has more run-ins, you know, and we remember when Sarah lied, but do you remember that a chapter earlier, God told Abraham he'd be the father of many nations, and it says, Abraham fell on the ground laughing. That's just a portion of Gary's talk on dealing with doubt live in Hawaii, and this is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugrin. Go right now to evidenceandanswers.org and get the entire conference unedited. While you're there, browse Pat Zugrin's books, articles, past conferences, past radio shows, and more. Your support helps us keep this program on the air with good information and teaching for you, your kids, your grandkids, the college student facing big questions, and the skeptic on a spiritual quest. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We get a lot of questions here at Evidence and Answers on Mormonism. Here's some of what Dr. Zuckerman had to say on this crucial topic. Mormons claim to be another Christian denomination. They claim to teach what the Bible teaches and therefore should be embraced as another Christian denomination here. The late Gordon Hinckley on Larry King Live said this, The crown of the gospel of Jesus Christ is upon our head. In this dispensation, the Lord has declared that this church, the Mormon church, is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. Well, are Mormons Christians? Should we embrace them as another Christian denomination? You know, I've got a lot of Mormon friends Great, wonderful, wonderful people, as I'm sure many of you do. Some of the nicest people that you're going to meet. And I would gladly welcome them as another Christian denomination. I'd be the first one to jump on the bandwagon if their teachings are consistent with what God's Word teaches. Well, we're going to take a look at just three essential doctrines tonight. The doctrine of God, doctrine of Jesus Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. Simple, huh? Those three basic doctrines. All right? And see if we match up, if we're teaching the same thing the Bible teaches, or if they're teaching something else. Let's take a look at what the uh, Bible teaches. Once again, Bruce R. McConkie, the late Bruce R. McConkie, was a great theologian and apologist for the Mormon church. He wrote their theology book here called Mormon Doctrine. You find this in a used bookstore, a great tool to pick up. It's uh, like a dictionary that summarizes all Mormon beliefs. You can also get it on the internet as well. Okay? Mormon Doctrine, one of their major theological works here. Bruce R. McConkie said this, Mormonism is Christianity. Christianity is Mormonism. They are one and the same. They are not to be distinguished from each other in the minutest detail. Mormons are true Christians. Their worship is pure, unadulterated Christianity, authored by Christ, accepted by Peter, James, John, and all the ancient saints. Well, let's take a look at what the Bible teaches regarding the doctrine of God. The Bible teaches monotheism, that there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, The Lord, He is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, there is none else. There is no God besides me. Historic Judaism and Christianity has always taught there is one God, creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things out of nothing. Isaiah 45, tw verse 12, It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. Mine own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. He's eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. God was always God. 
There never was a time when God was not God. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. God has been in existence from eternity. There never was a time where God was not existent. He did not come into existence. He is eternal. He's always been God. God is unchanging. But you remain the same and your ears never end. Psalm 102. Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. God is not growing. He is not learning and evolving and transforming himself. The character of God has always remained the same. He's been fully God from everlasting to everlasting. And we believe that there is one God revealed in three distinct persons. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see what we call the Trinitarian formula throughout the New Testament. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, a singular name, one in um, being, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Definite article in front of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay? In other words, there's one what and three who's. One in nature, three in person. One God revealed in three distinct, eternal, unchanging persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, he is the unique, divine Son of God, the one and only. There's none other like him. There's no one like Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ was from all eternity. There never was a time when Christ was not existing. Now, the incarnation, where he took on human form, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, but Christ has always been existent as the eternal Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's only one. There's only one Son of God. There's no one else like him. Salvation. Salvation is a gift of grace received by faith, not by good works. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation or any kind of exalted status in the heavens. We are saved by grace. There's nothing we can do. All we can do, all we are asked to do by God is to receive the gift he's given us through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible teaches there's one God, creator of all things, from everlasting to everlasting, eternal. He has always been God. There never was a time God was not God. What does Mormonism teach? Let's see if it matches up with what the Bible teaches. First of all, Mormonism teaches polytheism, that there are numerous gods who were once men who through their good life attain exaltation to godhood and rule on one of the millions of planets throughout the universe. In other words, God has a beginning. There was a time God did not exist. He became, came in human form and through his good life attained exaltation unto godhood. And there are numerous gods in the universe and all Mormon men have the ability, like God the Father and Jesus, to become a god of their own planet. Mormon doctrine. Once again, the theological work of the Mormon church. Bruce McConkie states, a plurality of gods exists. Many gods exist. There is an infinite number of holy personages drawn from worlds without number who have passed on to exaltation and are thus gods. Okay, page 576 of Mormon Doctrine. In the book of Abraham, in the Pearl of Great Price, 
chapter 4 through 5. It says, and they, the God said, let there be light and there was light. And they, the God said, on and on and on. The term gods is used in the plural over 50 times in chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. God was once a man like you and I who through his good life attained exaltation unto godhood. One of the famous sayings by the fifth president, Lorenzo Snow, he stated this, As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. The Doctrine and Covenants, one of the inspired works by Joseph Smith, says, God is a glorified and perfected man, a personage of flesh and bones. Oh, right, so you get it? God was a man like you and I, who through his good life attained exaltation unto godhood. So God the Father of this planet lived his life on another planet and through his good life attained godhood and became the God of this planet. Gospel Through the Ages. This is the theology book for Mormons who are going to go through the temple rituals. It says this, God and man are of the same race, differing only in their degrees of advancement. And the only difference between you and God is that he's advanced more than you are. You've been listening to some portions of the great lineup of speakers at Evidence and Answers Conference in Hawaii. And we want to thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Again, the entire conference is available right now at evidenceandanswers.org. It's our hope that you've gotten a lot of good information from this program, and we'd like to hear from you. Go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and give us your feedback. Browse our resources while you're there. We've got everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And no matter your spiritual background, you'll find fascinating topics and an intelligent presentation of the claims of Christ. We would also ask that you support us financially. Your gifts help keep this program on the air. You just click the donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. And again, we would so appreciate your vote of confidence. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.